It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. When we last left you, a Carl Malone elbow had hit Isaiah Thomas, leaving an undetermined amount of stitches with unclear intentions. On the floor, the Jazz hit stride including winning what's probably the greatest regular season game in Jazz history. In the midst of it all, their two All-Stars, John Stockton and Carl Malone, were playing at their peak. It's the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. The third episode of the 1991-92 Utah Jazz, the most pivotal of them all. I'm David Locke, your host for this five-part breakdown of one of the most important seasons in Utah Jazz history. When we last left you, Carl Malone had been suspended. Isaiah Thomas said he didn't think it was fair. It goes without saying that there's a double standard involved, said Isaiah. We're looked at differently than other teams. If Bill Lambeer had done the same thing, he probably would have been suspended for the whole season. The controversy didn't leave Carl Malone, and we'll just touch on that more coming up. But in the meantime, the Jazz hit the road, and they won their next two games. Jeff Malone led the way for the Jazz without Carl Malone. And on December 23rd in Cleveland, Craig Elo hit a three at the buzzer to beat the Jazz, and all of a sudden the Jazz had lost three straight on the road as they started the new season. Jazz, Carl Malone trailed Tom Chambers, Dan Marley, and Chris Mullen in all-star voting, and that didn't make him too happy. And the Jazz on January 9th played the Chicago Bulls. Steve Loom was the Salt Lake Tribune Jazz beat writer at the time, and he remembers when the Bulls were in town, the world champion Chicago Bulls, they'd won one at this point, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, they might as well have been you too. The Jazz played the Bulls in an exhibition game in Nashville. I'm not sure exactly what season, but I happened to walk outside as all the players were walking outside, and that's exactly what it was like. There were it was like a gauntlet of people um, reaching and grabbing and, and screaming, and and when you say rock show, that's exactly what what it was like. And this was in Nashville. This was a preseason game. It was. It was the the Bulls were uh, David Stern's dream as far as globalizing and pop, making the NBA popular and and just a mainstream event every night and that's what the Bulls did every night was a was an event. So the Jazz on January 9th headed to Chicago and did not have a good night. Carl and Jeff Malone both went six of fourteen. Stockton was three of seven. Michael Jordan dropped thirty seven on the Jazz who had twenty one turnovers. They got outscored 57 to 40 in the second half. So the Jazz were having slight road woes. They had not been able to match up against the great Chicago Bulls. In the meantime, Mark Eaton passed Daryl Griffith for most games played for the Jazz, but he wasn't playing nearly as much as he once did, playing just 30 minutes over nine times that year, which he had done it only once in the last month. And his scoring average at 2.6 points per game was, quote, a favorite target of talk show hosts and fans of the Delta Center. But the Jazz had found the Delta Center to be a great new venue. And the Jazz simply 
couldn't lose at home. In fact, they notched 17 straight. Brad Rock covered the Utah Jazz for the Deseret News and remembers what an incredible advantage the Delta Center had become. Yeah, it was it was definitely it was a huge advantage, and and, and there were it wasn't that way in every arena. It was kind of quiet. I mean, I always thought the Lakers, the Forum was quiet. Uh, you know, I remember uh, certainly, you know, the Clippers were quiet, the bad teams were quiet, but even some of the good teams, Portland was really, was really good, but Golden State and the Mitch Richmond era didn't seem that loud to me. Uh, and, and so the Jazz had built this, this, this home court thing. And along with players would talk about the altitude. And the other thing is being in Salt Lake. A lot of players didn't like it. They didn't like the town. They thought it was too quiet. It wasn't this, it wasn't that. And so all of them combined, I think players and teams did not want to come. The Jazz would start a string of remarkable games. They would play the San Antonio Spurs, who had won the Midwest Division title from them twice in the last two years. And then the Phoenix Suns, who'd knocked them out of the playoffs two years before. The Jazz got revenge over the Suns in an incredible 117-116 overtime win. Delaney Rudd was back in in the ever-rotating backup point guard position and played in the overtime after John Stockton had fouled out. Sloan had been ejected that night, so Phil Johnson was at the helm, and the Jazz were down by five in overtime when Stockton fouled out, but it was Delaney Rudd that led the Jazz to the win over the Suns team. It was hot. They'd won 24 of 30 when Phoenix Suns' Jeff Hornacek missed the three at the buzzer. The mailman continued to be just brilliant. 43 points and 16 rebounds in that game. 18 of those 43 were in the fourth quarter. The Jazz would then get another win against a not-as-good Dallas team. Jeff Malone was playing at an elite level defensively. And then the Rock Show would come to town. The Chicago Bulls were next. And it's a game that is commonly referred to as the greatest regular season game in Utah Jazz history. Wayne Larravee and Red Kerr were on the call on the Bulls WGN Network. Here's some of those highlights of a triple overtime Jazz win. Stockton gets the step into the lane. Throws it away! And throw it away with 3.0 seconds remaining. Oh, what a play! Timeout Chicago. Phil Jackson has 3.7 seconds with which to work. And the inbound to Jordan. The turnaround. No! We go to overtime. 9.6 seconds. Jordan from the outside. Yes! 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 It's tie. Six seconds. Woo! 28 for Jordan. Carl Malone the rebound. A three-pointer can tie for the Jazz. Stockton leads the league. Yes! Got it. He's got it. He comes down. Fires the three. Timeout by the Bulls. Oh, what a game. 25 seconds straight up to go, and John Stockton with a trade ties it. Jordan winding down the clock. Time left in the right-hand corner. Four, three on the shot clock. Michael with a force over Malone, taken out of the air by Carl Malone. Has over to marvelous game. If you're a basketball fan, this is a piece of heaven. Michael Jordan takes it across. Ten to go. No clock. Time left in the game. Jordan. Let's it go. And ties the game. 4.9 seconds remaining. Jeff Malone. Malone trying to beat the clock. Jordan got a piece of it and a foul. 
with all five seconds on the clock. Whoa, brother. Bill Jackson absolutely berserk. Michael not happy. They drive down the they drive down the side. MJ hit a hit a basket with four points. There's a technical on Jordan, and he's out. And Jordan is thrown out of the game. A triple overtime win for the Utah Jazz in a game that had so many twists and turns. The building was raucous. A three to tie it, as you heard by Jordan, but Stockton answered that. Both Jordan and Stockton missed chances in regulation. And by the end of it, the Jazz finally got the whistle they'd so desired, despite the fact that the Jazz Blue Edwards and Jeff Malone had both missed free throws that could have clinched the first overtime, and Jeff Malone missed a three-footer on the left baseline that could have won it once before. But at the end, it was a mysterious foul call that left Michael Jordan so furious that his post-game antics were quite unusual, according to Brad Rock. First of all, no doubt about it. It was the greatest regular season game. It was deafening. It was, as you remember, in the mid-90s and then 98, 99, how deafening it was. But it couldn't have been louder than it was that night. Uh, against the Bulls, and and it goes into triple overtime. And I remember uh, a questionable foul late in the game on Jordan. He fouls Jeff Malone, gets tossed. Uh, Jeff hits the free throws, and the Jazz win. What stuck out to me, too, is it was really unusual. As as I recall, Jordan didn't talk to any media after the game, and that was that was not like him. He was one of the great media personalities ever to play the game, and, uh, and and he didn't do it. The Bulls were the world champs, and for a Jazz team that had just got a nice win against Phoenix, was beginning to hit its stride, particularly at home, this one meant the world. It was, it was gigantic, and, you know, Jerry would never say that it was a different game. He said it was just another game. I don't think it was. It was the Chicago Bulls. It's the team that had turned their back on Jerry, and uh, certainly Carl and John, played well with a chip on their shoulder. And I do think, David, that um, that this was kind of a coming out party for the Jazz, that you better take these guys serious. They're tough. You know, they they out-roughed and tough the, the Detroit Pistons uh, in that one game we were talking about, uh, and, they, and they beat the Bulls. And so they were playing the best teams in the league and beating the best teams in the league in, in some of those games. So... Uh, that went, that's kind of, that kind of partway through that season, it dawned on me that, you know, maybe, maybe I should start taking these guys really seriously. And in the mind of Steve Loom, it flipped the switch on the rest of the season. It was in the middle of a, of an 11 game stretch where the Jazz won 10 and really got their season on track. Momentum in the NBA, it can turn just in a, in a snap of a finger. You get one win that you're not supposed to, you get, you get one hot fourth quarter that it can it can last it can impact weeks at a time and i think that that's that game and then again they beat phoenix in that same stretch um and phoenix had been a little bit of a nemesis for them uh i think that was i think that propelled them the last couple months of the season so the jazz were rolling and the key inside all of it for the utah jazz were their all-stars John Stockton and Carl Malone would make another all-star appearance and we'll break down their all-star games as we continue on the Utah Jazz 1991-92 season, the most pivotal of them all.
Today's show is brought to you in part by the store at 6200 South and 20th East, as well as downtown at the Gateway. Inside the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, the store is doing everything they can for you. First, an increased effort to make sure the store is always sanitary. I was there the other day, very comfortable. All the workers wearing masks, taking the extra efforts to make sure that all of us who have to get our essentials taken care of at the grocery store there. I went to the 6200 South, 20th East place, and I forgot to get a mudslide cookie. I clearly had lost it. What is wrong with me? Also located at the Gateway, where Ron Boone was just this week as well. Furthermore, the store is doing everything they can to stock their shelves for you. They're not tied in with the bigger group, so they can have multiple people serving them, getting them their things. And most of the places I went to were nicely full and taken care of. So if you're looking for somewhere to get all your essential needs, do your grocery shopping in a safe environment, the store, 600 South, 20th East. It's awfully nice to feel that community feel right now. And that's what you get when you're there at the store, whether it's the June pies, whether it's the chips, whether it's the great made salsas from the Utah companies, you get the Utah feel while you're there. Stop by and visit the store, 600 South, 20 of East. The back freezer section has all sorts of pre-made meals. You can put in the freezer, whether it's the pot pies, the enchiladas, the lasagnas. They're all terrific and be great for the families we're eating in more and more right now. It's the store, 600 South, 20th East, as well as located at the Gateway. Life is complicated, especially right now. You're spending more time inside, unable to go to restaurants, and that means you're cooking dinner. But if you're like me, I hate cooking. Multiple trips to the grocery store, hours of monotonous meal prep just so you can scarf down your food in minutes. So when it's dinner time, I grab my phone, open up an app, and order something. But after convenience fees, delivery fees, and who knows whatever other fees, it ends up being close to $100 for two people. But then I met Freshly. Just put up your feet and relax while Freshly chefs and nutritionists do all the hard work. All you do is heat for three minutes and dinner's done. Imagine a better for you golden oven fried chicken, steak peppercorn with sauteed carrots and French green beans, and my personal favorite, buffalo chicken with loaded mashed cauliflower. It's got fewer carbs. That's just a few of the 30-plus health-conscious options to choose from. Freshly understands that food needs to be delicious, healthy, and simple, because let's be honest here, if it's not easy, I'm not going to do it, and if it doesn't taste good, I don't want to eat it. Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off, $40 off for their first two orders at Freshly.com slash LockedOnNBA. That's Freshly.com slash LockedOnNBA. With the win over the Chicago Bulls, the Utah Jazz were rolling. They'd won four straight. They were 31-17, and and everything was rosy. From Chicago's standpoint, things were not so nice. Phil Jackson had some things to say before he left. Reading back from the Salt Lake Tribune story, he said, whatever he said, the referee deserved it. You don't make foul calls like that in the end of an NBA game. People know it's a desperation drive, and I don't know how much Jordan got him alone, but you just don't make those calls. He continued going after official Tommy Wood. This referee is a CBA official, but he's been in the CBA a few years. He should know what the situation is in the ballgame. Well, that was in the rearview mirror for the Utah Jazz. They'd gotten their win against the world champs. The road woes quickly returned in a disastrous loss two nights later, maybe a bit fatigued, to the Sacramento Kings, who were not particularly good, 100-98. But the Jazz came back home to the Delta Center 
And it continued to rock with wins over Cleveland and the Lakers, Denver, Boston, Dallas, and Houston. The Jazz were simply unbeatable at the Delta Center. On February 11th, the Jazz got to even the score against the Cleveland Cavaliers. A Craig Elo game winner had beat them. Jeff Malone had a three with nine seconds left. It was the first of the year. He said afterwards, I don't like threes. It's not part of my game, but I guess I can make them on occasion. It was a steal of Mark Price by Blue Edwards. John Stockton then went to the rim at the buzzer to lay it up and in. Carl Malone actually might have tipped it up and in, and the Jazz got the win despite what might have been a questionable call. But it was nice payback for Cleveland, who got a questionable call when Craig Elo beat them earlier in the year. Lakers came to town next, as we mentioned, and they were without magic, and Carl Malone went bananas, scoring 11 of his 35 in the final six minutes, and the Jazz would win it 97-91. Ty Corbin, remember, acquired for Thurl Bailey, did exactly what they wanted. He shut down James Worthy, and he had six of the final seven points for the Jazz. Afterwards, Mike Dunleavy, then the Lakers coach, was not too happy. I can't say what they did because I'd probably get fined. It's a problem when you have all the time with the Jazz. They're extremely good defensively, but to me, they also zone up a lot and get away with it. And he's a superstar, speaking alone, and he gets superstar benefits. The Jazz would beat the Denver Nuggets in a home game that wasn't televised. That's right, still some home games in that era weren't televised. On February 21st, the Jazz would play the Houston Rockets. Nothing really that interesting about that game other than the fact that the new head coach of the Houston Rockets, Rudy Tomjanovich, was now at the helm. The world was changing. Little subtle coaching changes happened in this year in which suddenly the Jazz would run into these people for multiple years to come. Tomjanovich took over the Rockets. George Carl took over the Sonics. The Jazz had swept their homestand. They were 37-18. and 18. They'd won six straight at home. And now it was time to go on the road and prove that they could get things done. They led the Midwest Division by five games. They were 26-2 and two at home, 11-16 and 16 on the road. And they had 10 playoff caliber road teams left. And the question circling was, were the Jazz good enough? February 24th, the Jazz would go to Portland. It was a matchup of number two versus number three as the Warriors were still the number one seed. The Jazz would lead by one after one, but the Blazers would take the lead at the half and take control late. They'd lead at 106-98 with two minutes left when John Stockton led a flurry with a three, a steal, and a layup. But by the time it was over, the Portland Trailblazers had won at Memorial Coliseum 110-107. Clyde Drexler had led the way. Jerry Sloan said afterwards, we couldn't make enough mistakes. We gave them so many easy baskets, it seemed like they outworked us. They had a little extra effort, and that's why they won. Hey, these guys get paid not to give up. There shouldn't be any comment made about that. The Jazz would do something rare in that day and age. They would charter a flight to L.A. for a back-to-back. And as luck would have it, the last team in the NBA to start chartering would have flight problems when they do. But when the Jazz got to L.A., they got a great win against the L.A. Clippers. Carl Malone had 33. Mark Eaton had a 20-footer with 122 left. And the Jazz would roll to a 106-101 win. When the clock was running down in the ballgame, Ken Norman and Mark Eaton would get into it. 
A few seconds after the buzzer, en route to the locker room, Clippers' Ken Norman charged the Jazz Center. Eaton pushed him. The two were then separated. Afterwards, Eaton said, at the end of the game, he hit me from behind on a rebound. He did it intentionally. And then coming off the floor, he came after me again. I'm not usually the aggressor in those situations, but you have to be when someone hits you from behind. It's a pretty cheap thing to do coming from behind. If the guy wants to mess with me, he should do it face-to-face, said the seven foot four Mark Eaton. Little did we know at the time that the February 24th, 25th matchups, the Jazz against the Portland Trailblazers and L.A. Clippers, would be precursors of the playoffs. The one constant in these games was the brilliant play of John Stockton. In Portland, despite the loss, 21 points, 15 rebounds, and four assists. And then when they went to L.A. to play the Clippers, John was just his subtle self. 13 points on five of eight shooting, 12 assists, and four more steals. John Stockton had been an all-star, but now about to turn 30 years old, he'd come into his own once again. For the fifth straight year, he was averaging 14 assists. He would lead the NBA in steals for the 91-92 season. And it all stemmed back to what now TV voice of the Utah Jazz, Craig Bullerjack, then KSL 5, anchor fearlessness. The one thing I remember was just Stockton's uncanny ability to really dominate a game and frustrate his opponents and actually battle through bigger guards. John was just a bear and, and, and seriously feared no one. And then he also had a running mate that was as powerfully built as anyone in the NBA at that time. Steve Loom, who'd watch Stockton get just a notch better each and every year, thought it all stemmed back to some playoff failures that had improved John's game. I think John got to be a better outside shooter. I believe it was the Golden State Series in 89 where Nelson's strategy was basically back off Stockton a little bit. If he wants to shoot, go ahead. We're not going to let Malone beat us. And John didn't shoot the ball as well as he would normally. And he really went to work on that and became became a threat shooting from the three point line. And in fact, that shooting had improved. In John's opening three years of the league, he shot below 20% from three. And in four of his first five, he shot below 25%. But in 1989-90, he went to 42%. And in the 91-92 season, he also shot 41% from three. Mark Eaton, the Jazz seven foot four center who told Ken Norman, face-to-face, buddy, had an on-floor view of John Stockton's maturation. John, uh, you know, he, he's got that many more years of experience now. He knows the court. He knows his teammates. Um, and we just had this real good flow going with both of those guys. And they played so well off of each other. And, and the offense that Jerry and Phil put in just really uh, played to their strengths. And, um, yeah, on any given night, those guys could go off. And, and uh, hopefully the rest of us could catch up and help them, help them win the game. And Ron Boone current radio announcer for the Utah Jazz, was then on the TV broadcast with Hot Rod Hunley. So he had a front row seat to watching John Stockton develop. What, what was so great about John Stockton and, and at 30 years old, obviously he's a seasoned player. Uh, he has a tremendous amount of uh, uh, games under his belt. Uh, he's a veteran player. He's played against every player in the NBA. Uh, he was a student of the game. He knew what to expect from, from uh and how teams and players were going to defend him. 
But I think the big difference with him is that the, the relationship at, that he had with Carl Malone uh, on how to get Carl Malone to basketball and when to get it, the timing, you know, and all those things like that, that, that John was, was, was so good at it. He was probably, probably the most complete point guard in the game at, at that time because his defense was good. Uh, and to shoot the basketball, he did that very, very well at the, that, that season. The question still for the diminutive Stockton, who at turning 30 years old, at six foot one and 170 pounds, in the mind of Steve Loom was still a question of longevity. About Stockton, is he, is he going to hold up? I mean, the Jazz had him in a in a set where he set a lot of screens and he got run over a lot of times, and 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 that's why they didn't start him immediately. He was good enough to start, he, as good as Ricky Green was. John was is was really good, was good enough to start the minute he walked in here, but. They were concerned that if they put the ball in his hands 38 minutes a night for 82 games, how long of a career is this guy going to have because of the way he played, of the things that were asked him? So I I think my thought was the toughness, and is he going to last? Stockton would finish the 1991-92 season with his fourth All-Star appearance. He'd be named second-team All-NBA. He'd average 16 points, 14 assists, three steals, while shooting 48% from the field, 41% from three, and of course, a solid 84% from the free throw line. The other half of the dynamic duo, Carl Malone. It was a tumultuous season, one with all sorts of noise, but nothing that prevented him from being his dominant self on the floor. We'll look at that when we continue. Looking at the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. Hi, this is Nate Duncan from Locked On's Hollinger and Duncan podcast. Those of you who listen to our show know that I try to take a measured approach. I'm not prone to hyperbole. It really takes something special to get me excited. But with all that said, Theragun is simply one of the best products that I have ever used. I just turned 40. I've always loved to work out, to play basketball when it's safe. And as I got into my 30s, it just wasn't possible to do that anymore the way I wanted to because my body didn't feel right. And Theragun has helped me fix so many of the aches and pains. I tried everything, massages, chiropractors, this at-home device, handheld percussive therapy has worked better than any of those for me. And now the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor. It's so quiet. It's no louder than an electric toothbrush. And best of all, you can try Theragun risk-free for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need starts at only $199. Go to theragun.com slash locked on, the name of this network right now, and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com slash locked on, theragun.com slash locked on. The NBA restart has its first big injury. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. Orlando Magic forward Jonathan Isaac suffered a torn ACL in his left knee on Sunday. Listen to Locked On Magic for where Isaac and Orlando goes from here. To the ice. The qualifying series in the NHL are on, and the Minnesota Wild began with a 3-0 win over the Canucks. Joe Bully and Tony Abbott of Locked On Wild have a victory recap, and the Locked On NHL podcast has Western Conference playoff predictions. 
And finally, as college football conferences around the country try to figure out how they are going to restart, a group of Pac-12 players is demanding safety protocols and threatening to opt out of the season. I would point you to Locked On Big Ten podcast and a very interesting discussion on creative solutions to solve college football's mounting problems. Local experts on the biggest stories, it's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. In episode two of the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all, we touched on the controversy around the elbow by Carl Malone to Isaiah Thomas. But that was not the first controversy of the year for Carl. After Magic Johnson had announced he was HIV positive, the Jazz would actually play a preseason game in New York City. Carl Malone would be asked about Magic Johnson. He said, look at these scabs and cuts all over me. I get these every night, every game. They can't tell you that they're not at risk. You can't tell me there's one guy in the NBA who hasn't thought about it. Other guys said the same thing. Gerald Wilkins, former Nick, said everyone's talking about it. Some people are scared. There could be dangers to all of us, but dealing with Magic Johnson, so people are handling it with white gloves. They're not going to say how they really feel. Well, Carl Malone was the one who did, and it followed the Olympian all throughout the season. Brad Rock remembers what being on the road with Carl Malone was like during that 91-92 season that involved his comments about Magic Johnson's HIV and the elbow to Isaiah Thomas. Carl Malone, I think, at first didn't want to talk about it, and then he did. And eventually, Dave, he, you know, that's where he said, at some point is where he said, he would have reservations playing against Magic. And I do remember that year uh, through the rest of the year. You know, there was no internet. So through the rest of the year, every stop we went on, Carl, uh, that's all they wanted to talk about was what Carl had said, whether he wanted to play against Magic, and they would throng into the locker room, the media people from New York, Boston, et cetera, and, uh, and try to get Carl's, uh, Carl's take on it. Steve Loom, Salt Lake Tribune beat writer, would reiterate many of the same feelings. The night that Carl said that was in New York, I believe, the first time he said that. And he was asked that question about five different ways before he actually said, I would be a little nervous. And it goes back to what we knew about the disease at that time. Nobody knew too much. And it it was just something that hung over Malone all year long. I think Carl even at that point, was was a, a, a young man who was a little bit naive. Um, I don't. I don't think. I also think that he was expressing what many people felt. Many, many players. You just didn't know. And after a game, when you'd see Carl Malone come off the floor and he had scratches on his arm and his forehead and his shoulders, and and that's just the way it was underneath the basket at the NBA. Back on the floor, the Jazz had played that back-to-back between Portland and L.A. and then came to play the Seattle Supersonics. They'd won 17 straight at home after an opening night loss to the Sonics, but the Sonics would come in and beat the Jazz at the Delta Center, only their second loss at home. 130-124, to an overtime loss, and the Sonics had suddenly won 8 of 9 under George Carlo, who took over for Casey Jones, and Eddie Johnson had 32, Ricky Pierce had 29, For the Jazz, the discouraging thing was they led by 10 in the third quarter and the offense fell apart in the fourth quarter. And their lead over the San Antonio Spurs in the Midwest Division was still 
at four games. The start of March would tell a lot about the Jazz. Golden State was the number one seed. Midwest Division rival San Antonio was still right there nipping at their heels, and they'd have a matchup with Phoenix on a Sunday 130 national TV game. The Suns would lead at one point, 32 to 16, and Jazz fans would have to be thinking, we just can't beat the best teams. But Jeff Malone dominated the third quarter, hitting seven of eight shots, scoring 14 points in less than five minutes. The Jazz took the lead, and while the offense went south, going 10 of 22 with five turnovers, Dan Marley, Jeff Hornacek, and then Marley again hit back-to-back-to-back threes, and an 82-82 tie suddenly had the Suns an advantage by seven with 8.25 to play. The Jazz got it down to six as Kevin Johnson hit a shot over John Stockton. The night was over. KJ had 32, Jeff Hornacek had 27, and the Jazz nemesis, the Phoenix Suns, still had their upper hand having beaten the Jazz 12 straight times at Veterans Coliseum in Phoenix. One note on that game, John Stockton played 48 minutes, and the Jazz lead over San Antonio was down to three and just one game ahead of the Suns in the standings. To understand the Utah Jazz then, you had to understand how much they relied on the mailman. Steve Loom remembers Carl Malone's vital position on this offense. The Jazz back then, they ran everything through Malone on the low block. I mean, if they didn't get a a transition basket, that's where they wanted to get the ball. And it was just a tremendous, tremendously taxing uh, type of, of job that he had for those jazz teams. And, and he just kept getting bigger and stronger and, and tougher. And by 1991-92, the mailman had already been an all-star five times. By 1991-92, Carl Malone had already been an all-star four times. It would make his fifth all-star appearance. In his fifth season of the NBA, two years prior to this, he averaged 31 points and 11 rebounds. He continued to take that role. Steve Loom talked about the last year with 29 points and 12 rebounds. And on this season, he averaged 28 points and 11 rebounds. Those nights of dominance were probably the ones that stood out the most. And maybe one of the biggest regular season wins came next for the Jazz on a night where Carl Malone simply established himself as one of the best in the NBA. The Jazz would go to Golden State. The road woes would continue for them with that loss in Phoenix we just mentioned. The Warriors were favored by six and a half, but Malone went bananas. 44 points, 20 of them in the fourth quarter. Mailman made 16 of 21 and hit 12 straight free throws. Jerry Sloan would understate it after the game. We were able to get the ball to Carl a few times, and he was able to come away with something. He did a little more than come away with something. He gave the Jazz a mammoth road win. But that's what the mailman was doing every night. Mark Eaton just marveled at what the mailman was becoming. You know, the mailman just got better and better each year because uh, his game became much more efficient. He worked really hard on his body. He knew he wasn't going to get fouls called every time down the floor, and he had to get to the basket some way, even if it meant going through a few people. And um, and he you know, wasn't getting as angry with the refs and things like that. He's like, okay, I'm just going to win. I'm just going to make jumpers. I'm going to get to the basket. I'm going to run the floor. And um, just became a machine. And Ron Boone recalls Carl becoming a more dominant player. Uh, during that time, I, I thought that's when he was starting to become a 
force. And when I say force, I mean not only uh, the power game that he had around the basket, but uh, all of a sudden he became a better free throw shooter at 77%, I think, that year. Uh, and his offensive game became much, much better, which means he was able to turn that power game into a, a great mid-range jump shooter, reliable mid-range jump shooter. Uh, and then the, his transition game with his speed, I mean, he could have been a tight end for anybody in the, in the NFL. But his speed and transition, you know, especially with John Stockton getting the basketball, it became, uh, that was, uh, became his signature. Booner mentions it in there. It's the running. When you go back to watch an old YouTube video of this 91-92 season, there are the plays where the mailman just hits the accelerator and he runs out in front of each and every one of the players on the floor and Stockton loops it right there into him. And Craig Bowler-Jack remembers it fondly. And could finish and run. His I, I, Carl's speed, I think, at that time was just something so unique in the NBA. And the way that he was able to run was Stockton. And their sixth sense, as we call sixth sensibility, uh, David, was on display. And that's where I think the lead totally took notice of was what to come. And boy, did it have an impact on this league for many, many years. For Steve Loom, this season for Carl Malone was beginning to be the culmination of something he, be- he began to wonder over the years. Thinking back, I kind of remember thinking, how good is this guy going to get? Because he had made just such tremendous strides in the four or five years that I had covered them. You know, quick hands, defensively. He didn't guard the other team's best player uh, all the time. But if there was 30 seconds to go in a close game and the other team wanted to get the ball on the block, Carl Malone was the guy guarding him. His quick hands, he used to, he used to just really frustrate a great player like David Robinson by reaching and slapping the ball away. And yeah, you know, he probably fouled a few times and, and they got mad at, about that uh, not being called, but I, I always thought he would be such a tremendous tight end in football, just an emerging star who, who some teams had guys who could match up with a little bit and fight them on the block. Some teams were just, they had no chance. He was, he had just gotten that good. He would just overpower people. And uh, I also remember, him doing a little something every year to get a little bit better. And the obvious thing was the free throw shooting. But over and above that, a a little bit better grasp of the game, a little bit better outside shot extending his his reign. One other note on that season by Carl Malone. The talking at the free throw line, that's when it started. And still to this day, none of us have any idea what he was saying. Just he was adamant. I mean, I had a pretty good relationship with Carl, and I had a, in a couple of settings, I thought I had him primed for him to tell me what he was going to say. Never told me. And I, I guess lip readers have gone after it and all that. And I still to this day really don't have a 100% knowledge of what he had to say. That was, that was a secret Carl Malone kept to himself, and I, I'm guessing to himself. Never really could break that one out of him. I tried many times. I'm sure you did too. The two Jazz All-Stars were rolling. They had the great road win against the Golden State Warriors. But now it was time for the biggest game of the year, according to Carl Malone. And Jeff Malone thought the same. You can't get to this point of hanging at this altitude and think it's life or death, said Jeff. But this one's pretty close. Coming up. 
on our next episode of the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all, the Jazz and the San Antonio Spurs go head-to-head as the Jazz finally reclaim the Midwest division. Hi guys, this is Josh Lloyd, host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. The NBA is back, so that means that fantasy basketball is back in one form or another. We've got daily fantasy, but there's also some fantasy leagues with the resumption of play with these eight regular season games in Orlando, and Locked On Fantasy Basketball is going to have you covered. It's not just for fantasy basketball, though, because we recap all of the games across the NBA, so if you're looking for a broad overview of the action across the league every day, Locked On Fantasy Basketball is the podcast for you.